God who longs to hear from us, a God who, even though you're the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you welcome us into your presence with any and every prayer request that we may have. And Lord, I pray that our lives, as Jim just sung out of Psalm 34, will magnify your name. Not just with our lips, not just here on Sunday mornings, not just with the words of our music, but really with our entire lives. And Lord, today as we come to a a very practical topic of finances and money, I pray that you will give us understanding of, of how we are to utilize and to view money. Lord, we know that we all have to deal uh, with this in a world that, that requires money to live, really. Um, but I pray, Lord, that we will not conform to the patterns of this world, but that as we dig into Scripture together, that you will transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we will hold money in a healthy perspective and revere, revere you above all else. So we pray for your guidance now through your word and through your spirit. And may we have open and ready hearts to hear and to learn and to apply these things that you are about to teach us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, as a pastor, one of the things that I get to do is premarital counseling. And it's something that we do with any couple that I'm going to perform their wedding. And in premarital counseling, one of the things I have every couple do is an assessment called the meaning of money. If you have gone through premarital counseling with me, you are familiar with this assessment. It's a list of questions that you are supposed to answer on a scale from one to five. And these questions help us to understand what does money mean to each individual. Let me give you a few examples of the questions on this assessment. For instance, in making a major purchase, I consider what others will think of my choice. You answer on a scale from one to five. One being strongly disagree, five being strongly agree. Another question is, having some money in savings is very important to me. Some people would say, you know what, I, I very strongly agree with that. Others would say, yeah, not, I don't care that much. Another question, I really enjoy shopping and buying new things. Or, I would be uncomfortable putting all my money into a joint account. And there are a number of these types of questions. And after people take these uh, assessments individually, they tally things up, and then they come up with a score that, that fits into four main categories. One category that comes out of these questions is that they view money as a form of status, a status symbol, basically. Or others view it as a source of security, or a source of enjoyment, or a source of control. And so different people view money in different ways. And one of the reasons that we do this assessment is that in marriage, finances are the number one source of conflict. You may wonder, okay, why are finances such a big source of conflict in marriage? Well, the underlying reason is because people have different meanings for what money is to them. If someone views their money as a source of security, odds are they're going to be fairly frugal. They're going to be more likely to want to save money. They're going to want to invest uh, very conservatively because, you know, it's security. They don't want to take risks with their money. On the other hand, if someone views their money as a source of enjoyment, odds are good they're going to spend more freely. They're going to want to spend their money on things that they enjoy doing, whether it's purchasing products, whether it's uh, services, whether it's vacations. And so you see just with that little example, if you have two people who have different views of the meaning of money in their lives, they're going to pull in different directions. When you really think about money in our lives, it's, it's really quite amazing how just, you know, this 
little green sheet of paper. All, I mean, all it is is just fancy green paper. Um, but we invest it with so much meaning. I mean, in our culture, it allows us to buy things, to do things. Uh, but, but it's amazing how this money wedges itself into our lives, not just as a tool to let us purchase things or to, to pay our mortgage and to pay our utility bills and buy food and, and purchase gas for our cars. It does that, but it does so much more because money wedges itself into our sense of identity, into our sense of significance in, to, in life in our sense of well-being and security. It's amazing how powerful money really is. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. We are in a series right now, actually nearing the end of the series, called Wisdom, which is walking through the book of Proverbs. And today's topic is money. We're understanding, okay, how does God's wisdom apply to how we view and use money? Now, when pastors and church leaders start talking about money, people oftentimes get kind of squirmy. They, they get uncomfortable, um, and sometimes for good reason, because there are churches out there who do talk extensively about the importance of giving money to the church, give money to the church, give money to the church. And unfortunately, on top of that, there are many accounts of pastors and other, other church leaders embezzling money or just generally misusing church finances. So I understand that at times this topic of money in terms of talking about it in a church setting can make us a little bit uncomfortable. Yet we also have to understand when we look in the scripture that God has never been timid talking about money. I mean, you look at Jesus. He talked way more about money than he ever talked about prayer or about heaven and hell. Now, prayer, heaven and hell, those are important topics, but he talked about money a lot more than he talked about those topics. Or throughout the New Testament letters, there's a lot of talk about money from various angles. And today, in, in the book of Proverbs, we're going to see Proverbs has a lot to say about money. So the question is, why does God talk so much about money? Why is it such a big deal? Well, the, the root issue here, it, it's an issue of discipleship, about following Christ. I mean, biblically, there is to be a, an intimate connection between Scripture and our wallet or our pocketbook. I mean, these two are to interact with one another in a very specific and intimate way. If there's a disjunction here where, where Scripture and God and our relationship with God doesn't influence the way we view and use money, you know what that says? We have some major dysfunctions in our relationship with God. We have a really maybe even a lousy relationship with God if our relationship with God doesn't influence our view and our use of money in a significant way. Because to God, the way we view and use money is, is a really big deal, as we will see today. Now, as I said, our main passage we're going to be focusing on is Proverbs verse 30. But before we get to that, we're going to look at a couple other passages first to kind of lay some groundwork. Because Proverbs really looks at two different sides of money. And one side of money is this perspective that money can be a very good thing. It can be a very good thing. For instance, making money in Proverbs is seen as a positive outcome of work. For instance, chapter 10, verse 4 says, lazy, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. So what this proverb is doing is lifting up the importance of working diligently and by association and connection and implicitly says, you know what? Making money through your diligent work is a good thing. 
actually the word here for wealth is the word for riches. You know what? It's not a bad thing if, even if you become rich working diligently, working in a godly manner. Similarly, over in chapter 13, verse 11, it says, Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. So this idea of, of slowly and patiently expanding your financial resources shows, you know what? Money isn't inherently a bad thing at all. It's fine to have money. Money can be a very positive and a very good thing. And one of the other things we see uh, in Proverbs is that God's blessing can include financial prosperity. It can include. It doesn't necessarily have to, but it can include it. For instance, chapter 10, verse 22 says, The blessing of the Lord brings wealth. And we see that, that throughout the Old Testament, a number of the people who were very close to God were also very wealthy people. People like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, King Solomon. Joseph, even, even Job. I mean, yeah, Job had some challenges in his life, but he also at times had great prosperity financially. And so we see that God can, as a form of blessing, bring financial prosperity into someone's life. But we also have to understand that there is not necessarily a cause and effect relationship between godliness and prosperity. I mean, there's this idea of what's called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel saying, okay, if you're really pleasing God, if you're really honoring to him, then he will bless you and make you rich. That is not biblical at all. Because when you look at the broader picture of, of the Bible's teaching, and even teaching in Proverbs, we have to understand that there is not a one-to-one -one correlation of if you please God, he will make you rich. If you give to God, he will make you rich. No, that's not a correlation at all. We have to understand these proverbs are, are general principles. They're not absolute promises. And you know what? You can be poor and still be very godly. And I think about Jesus and about Paul. That if, if wealth was a sign of godliness and of God's stamp of approval on someone, Jesus and Paul are really on God's blacklist. Because, I mean, Jesus... I mean, he really didn't have much more in terms of earthly possessions besides his clothes and the shoes on his feet. And he didn't have a home that he owned. I mean, Paul oftentimes didn't have all that much financially or materially. They would be on God's blacklist if there's a cause and effect relationship between godliness and, and wealth. And people like embezzlers and drug dealers would be in the, in, in the apple of his eye. I mean, they would be amazing in God's sight if there was a direct correlation between wealth and godliness. But there's not that direct correlation, even though at times in Proverbs, it does say that God's blessing can include financial prosperity. So what that shows is that uh, financials, or wealth, money, it can be a good thing. And also we see in the book of Proverbs just how we need money to live. We need money to care for our family. Saving money is a good thing. Planning for the future financially is wise. And so we see in the book of Proverbs that money can be a very good thing. But remember, there are two different sides of money that Proverbs presents. And I want to focus most of our time on this other side, about how money can also be a very dangerous thing. And the reason I want to focus on this is because of the culture in which we live. We live in a culture that is very materialistic, that is very affluent. We may not feel like we are wealthy. Most of us feel like, you know what, we're just kind of normal people. 
and maybe in comparison relative to other Americans, we're fairly average, fairly middle class. But if you compare us with the rest of the world, we are filthy rich. If you've ever talked with someone who's come to America from another country and, and just listen to them about, you know, what, what are your perspectives of America? One of the things you'll inevitably hear is the financial prosperity of Americans. We are blinded to that because that's the ocean we swim in every single day. We just take it for granted that, yeah, we, we have probably multiple cars. We have plenty of food. I mean, we may have uh, several weeks, if not a month or two worth of food just in our cupboards, in our refrigerator, in our freezers. We are filthy rich. And what ends up happening is this seeps into that sense of identity and significance and security. So what we're talking about today as we really dig more into what Proverbs has to say is that money can be a very dangerous thing. And now we're looking into Proverbs chapter 30, uh, specifically verses 7 through 9. It says, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. Now, this is an interesting passage for a couple of reasons. One is not coming from King Solomon. Solomon did write the majority of the Proverbs, but if you look in your Bible, odds are good at the top of chapter 30 where this comes from, it may say something like the sayings of Agur. Now, you may be wondering, who is Agur? We don't really know. Because all we know about him comes right here in Proverbs chapter 30. But you can tell he was a very wise man. Um, it's interesting. This is the only prayer in the entire book of Proverbs. I mean, most of Proverbs is just these statements of wisdom. This is the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. And it's a very interesting prayer because he's looking at his whole life and he says, God, grant me these two things as I look over the course of the rest of my life before I die. He says, keep falsehood and lies far from me. But then he also says, you know what, God? Don't give me poverty, but don't give me riches either. Just give me my daily bread, just enough to survive, to do all right. But I don't need poverty. I, I, I don't even need riches. And we're looking at this type of prayer, we may think, come on, Edgar, surely you can shoot a little bit higher than that. Um, I mean, you look at King Solomon. I mean, God asked Solomon, Solomon, you can have anything you want. Ask me, ask me what you want. Solomon said, give me wisdom. And God gave Solomon wisdom in abundance, making him the most wise person to ever live. And on top of that, the most wealthy person to ever live. And here you have Agur. He's requesting something of God. He's basically laying out, God, these are my life goals. Please give me the things I'm asking for. He says, you know, just give me enough to survive. I'm all right with that. Don't make me rich. Please. He's specifically saying, do not give me a ton of money. And we may be thinking, come on, shoot a little bit higher than that. Um, I mean, God is, is who's rich. He owns everything. Surely he could spare a little bit more. Why don't you want a little bit more than that, Agur? Well, what he recognizes here is that focusing on money pulls us away from God. It pulls us away from God. And he, he points to these two different extremes. One, he says, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? He recognizes the depravity of his heart that if he's not careful, if he gets too much money, odds are good he's going to develop the spirit of arrogance or of independence, of thinking, you know what, I don't need God anymore. There's a reality that when we have a lot of money, 
we may be tempted to depend on that as our form of security rather than depending on God. And we say, you know, he's the Lord. I don't need him anymore. I have all this money. He recognizes that part of his heart. He says, God, don't give me too much. But he also says, don't give me too little, little or else I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Now we have to recognize here that, you know what, greed doesn't really depend on how much money we have. Many times when people think of those who are greedy, they think of people who have a whole lot of money, definitely more than we have. Um, it's people who have a lot of money who are rich, who are greedy. But again, greed is not a function of how much we have. Greed is a function of our heart's attitude towards money. You can have a person who earns $30 million a year who is greedy. You can have a person who is flat broke who is greedy as well because they are looking to money to be their God, basically. You can also have someone who earns $30,000 a year or $80,000 a year who is greedy. Or you can have someone who earns $30 million a year and may not be greedy. It all depends on what's going on in their heart. And Agur recognizes that and he says, God, just give me my daily bread. Give me enough to live. I don't want to be put in that place where I am going to be easily tempted. Now, we do have to recognize, even if you're middle class, even if you're, you don't have too much, don't have too little, we can still be greedy. We can still have that heart that idolizes money. And we have to recognize that the root issue here with money, why it can be dangerous, is this topic of idolatry. Idolatry, um, in this case with money, idolatry with money is simply looking to money to do what only God can do. Looking to money to do for us what only God should ultimately do. Now, typically when we think of idolatry, we think maybe of, of some person who lives over in some jungle, maybe in southeastern Asia or something like that, and, and they're bowing down to these little wooden or stone or metal idols, and they're worshiping them, and you think that, that's idolatry. That is idolatry. But you know what? This, in America, is probably our main form of idolatry. I mean, we, we idolize sex, too. There are a lot of other things we can idolize, but I think money is our greatest source of idolatry as Americans. And, and you know what? It's not a contemporary phenomenon at all. Paul recognized it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So greed is a form of idolatry because what greed does is it looks to money to do what only God can do. Greed looks to money to be a source of identity for us or to be a source of significance for us, to be our source of approval from others or to be a source of security for us. It is idolatry. It's, it's not looking to God to be our Savior. It's looking to money to be our Savior. And again, it's not a function of how much we have because sometimes when you have people who are living in, in, in deep poverty, to them, what they're looking to, to to help them out, to get them out of that poverty, to give them hope, is money. They're thinking, if only I could get some more money, then I would be satisfied, then I would be happy. You know what? That's idolatry. Because it's making God your sa or making money your savior there, rather than God. Now it's interesting that when we look at this topic of greed, most of us don't recognize greed in ourselves. We recognize it in others. There have been a number of different polls and surveys um, in America and in Europe. Um, one of them asks, okay, 
What do you think is the greatest of the seven deadly sins? Or which, which sin or which issue is most urgent in America today? And inevitably, what comes up over and over and over in those types of surveys is that greed is at the top. Or, or one survey showed that greed and materialism is the most urgent problem in America today, followed very closely by poverty and, and, and economic injustice. So people recognize, you know what, greed is an issue. It's a big problem. But then you look at a second type of survey that asks people, okay, looking at your life, which sins do you struggle with the most? There's a survey done by the BBC over in Britain um, a few years ago, and it asked, okay, the seven deadly sins, which have you committed in your lifetime, and which have you committed in the last month? You know, Brits, they, they freely admitted to lust, to anger, to laziness, things like that. At the very bottom of the list, seven thousand seven, was greed. To them, as they looked at themselves, they thought, you know what, yeah, I may struggle with anger, lust, stuff like that, but I don't really struggle that much with greed. So it's an interesting paradox here, how we look around at the world around us and say, you know what, we, our, our society has a big greed problem, but not me. I'm doing all right. I mean, as a pastor, I am privileged to um, have people share personal things with me at times, at times confessing sin or anxieties. And you know what, I've had people confess a wide variety of sins to me, whether it's things like lust or anger or or. or, or or prayerlessness or anxieties and, and incessant worry and things like that. I can't recall anyone ever telling me, you know what, I am really struggling with greed these days. I don't hear that very much or ever. What happens is we get blinded to our own greed. It's this issue of idolatry that we have to understand that underneath the surface, there are things going on. There's what are called surface idols and then deep Idols. The surface idol is what manifests itself outwardly. Greed in terms of love and money, um, maybe anger, um, lust, things like that. But, but there's a deep idol underneath all those things, deep in our heart of what's motivating us. And that's what this assessment and preparing ritually points to. Money and status, security, enjoyment, control. Those can be sources of deep idols. Or again, if someone looks at money, or, or if someone deep in their heart has a control issue, they feel like I need to be in control of my world and of my life. And that is their deep idol that gives them a sense of security and purpose and identity. Odds are good they're going to be using money. That's going to, their deep idol is, is control. Their money is a surface idol. It's played out in terms of money. They're going to want to use money to control others around them, maybe to control their family. That's why one of the questions asked, would you be comfortable sharing a bank account? Well, no. If you and your marriage or in another setting are not willing to share or trust others with finances, if you have to be the one to control, well, it may show a deep idol of control. So we have to dig under the surface to understand what's going on in the heart that is leading to greed. Now, it's interesting as we look at money that it's so easy to treasure money, to put it up on that pedestal and think, you know what, money, it's so important to me. It can get me so much, whether it's the security, the enjoyment, and stuff like that. But money is a very deceitful treasure. It's very useful for getting the things we need in this life. But as a treasure, when we put it up on that pedestal, it is very deceitful, meaning it's very deceptive, meaning on the outside it looks really good, it promises a whole lot. But when we really begin to trust in it, 
it doesn't follow through. And this is why Proverbs is very careful about warning us about not putting too much trust in money. For, for instance, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 16 points to a better treasure. It says, how much better to get wisdom than gold, to get insight rather than silver. You know what? Gold and silver forms of, of wealth might be pretty good, but it says how much better is wisdom. In other places, you can find how much better is God. When we recognize that there is a better treasure than money, it helps put money in its place and helps us not have anxiety and greed when it comes to our finances. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 11 says, The rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. So what this is saying is that when someone has a lot of money and they're trusting in that money as their source of security, it's like a strong city, and, but it's really just a part of their imagination. I mean, they think it's a high wall that's going to protect them, but if we're honest with ourselves, we have to recognize no amount of money is going to protect us from a lot of the dangers in this life. No amount of money can protect you from being injured or even killed in a car crash. No amount of money is going to be able to cure you from certain types of cancer. No amount of money is going to resolve marital issues that you may be dealing with. No amount of money for NFL players is going to help save them from long-term mental health issues that come from uh, repeated concussions. No amount of money is going to save us from a lot of these different things. And so that's why if we're putting our trust in money, it's a deceitful treasure. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28 says, Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Now, it's an interesting idea of putting our trust in riches. That's the idea of faith. And we're told biblically, put our faith in God, trust in Him. But instead, it's so easy to put our trust in riches. But again, it's a, uh, money is a very deceitful treasure because it cannot fulfill I came across a very tragic story, a uh, sad story as I was preparing for this message. It's about a family who won the lottery uh, about 10 years ago. Um, even to this day, it's the richest undivided jackpot in lottery history. $314 million went to one family. I mean, typically when, when the jackpots and lottery get up to that amount, you have so many people who are going out to buy lottery tickets, they all want a piece of it, and what ends up happening is you get multiple people who are winning that jackpot at the same time, so it has to be divided. But this one family, this one time, won $314 million undivided, all going to them. Now listen to what uh, the wife of this family said in retrospect. She said, you know what? I wish all this never would have happened. I wish I would have torn the ticket up. That is her response in the years following winning $314 million. I wish it would not have happened. It's really a tragic story because of how this lottery winning changed their life for the negative. I mean, their house got broken into multiple times. Um, they were robbed at gunpoint. Actually, one of their grandchildren actually was killed because they ended up getting associated with the wrong groups of people as a result of these finances. Um, I mean, it, it ripped apart the marriage. I mean, it caused so many issues. And that's what money does, especially when you come into it quickly, is people think, well, I can handle that amount of money. But, but inevitably, for a vast majority of people, when you come into that amount of money very quickly, it does corrupt you. It changes things. And she says, you know what? I wish it wouldn't have happened. Last night, I was uh, on ESPN.com just watching uh, um, uh, highlights from a sports game, St. Louis Cardinals. I'm a Cardinals fan. Um, yeah. 
It's all right. Um, no, but it's interesting. If you're ever on ESPN.com, you probably see these advertisements for what's called DraftKings. It's, it's a fantasy, fantasy sports uh, company that you can make a lot of money in. Their tagline is where real people win life-changing amounts of cash every week. And in preparation, as I'm in the midst of this sermon prep, I'm thinking, you know what? Okay, real people can win life-changing amounts of cash. The question is, how is it going to change their lives? For most people, winning vast amounts of cash, several mil million dollars, you know what? You might be able to buy some fun things, but it's probably not going to overall change your life for the better. I mean, studies have actually shown that the more money you have, the more prone you are to suicidal thoughts, to depression. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. That's why in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, it talks about the Lord being our strong tower. He says, the name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. So rather than trusting in riches, we are called to run to God, to trust in him. I mean, it's so sad when you look at what happens when you do pursue riches, thing. you know what, that will be my treasure. That will be my, my justification. That will be my salvation. I mean, Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest men in his era, uh, owned what was the forebear of the U.S. Steel Company. He said, millionaires seldom smile. I think there's a truth to that, especially, I mean, if you've worked hard or if you, to earn that money, if you're running a large corporation, if you um, are, are stressed out about that money, it's hard to truly be happy. Money does not necessarily buy happiness. Henry Ford said, I was happier when I was doing a mechanics job because it's simpler. You don't have to stress this. I mean, yeah, it might be kind of cool to run a company, to be a big name that people will remember for generations, to have money to buy whatever you want. But is the stress worth it? frugally um, in how we live, but I think about one area of my life where it's not been quite as frugal more recently with bicycles. You know, bicycles have to work their way into most messages. But it's relevant here. Because back when I started biking a few years ago, I was riding my wife's mountain bike from high school. It was a men's bike, still a little bit small for me. You know what? I didn't think about the... the that bike in terms of taking care of it, in terms of, you know what, someone might steal it. I had no worries about the bike itself, except maybe it might fall apart while I'm out on the trail with it. A couple years ago, I invested in a nicer bike, a Trek bike, a little bit faster, um, like I said, nicer. And then I began to think a little bit more, you know what, if I'm going to leave it somewhere outside for a while, I'm going to lock it up. I'm going to keep an eye on that thing because it's a nicer bike. I'm a little bit more concerned about it. At first, I'm worried I don't want it to fall over, I don't want to get scratches on it. Then you get a few scratches and you just your view of it changes. Then this summer I invested in a very nice road bike. Now, when rocks and sticks come up and hit it, I'm much more conscious of that. I don't like that. I don't generally ride it when it's wet outside. Would you believe I lock up my bike in the garage? I do. I mean, because it's parked very close to the garage door. I mean, people of all price of bikes get them stolen. And I think, you know what? Let's just avoid that temptation. Let's just lock it up when it's in the garage. So it's locked to, the, to a stud in the wall of our garage. But you know what? 
It's just a case in point of how the more we have, the nicer things we have, the more we are prone to worry about the money, and nice things don't necessarily bring happiness. I think of, of Scott Adams. Um, I've used this illustration a few different times, but he, he created the, the cartoon strip Dilbert. Um, doesn't matter if you don't know who Dilbert is, but the point is still relevant. He wrote on his blog a few years ago, I remember when Dilbert hit it big and it became clear that I would never again have to worry about money. It was a wonderful blessing, but it didn't last. I went from happy to hollow with no warning. The first moment I could afford any car I wanted, I lost interest in having a nice car. I simply couldn't see a point if there ever was one. Success is surprisingly disorienting. One day about 10 years ago, I was alone in my office, sitting on the couch and reflecting on the fact that I had managed to become rich and famous in my dream job. For the first time in my life, I had no goals. And for a goal-oriented guy, that's an empty feeling. Success was supposed to feel good and stay that way, but it tricked me. There was a huge hole in my soul. I sat in my office and sobbed. You see, he, he became rich and famous. He accomplished all of his goals, but he realized, you know what? It's a deceitful treasure. It doesn't ultimately satisfy. And so that's why Agur, back here in, in chapter 30 of Proverbs, says, you know what? Give me neither poverty nor riches. Help me to not idolize wealth, but instead be satisfied, be content with what I have. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. If we have contentment, that will satisfy us. So the question for us is, what do we do about all this? What do we do in light of Proverbs teaching on, on money? Well, let me give you three quick things. One thing, work hard. I mean, Proverbs does lift up the importance of hard work. Proverbs 14, verse 23, for instance, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. It says, you know what? Work hard. Work hard at what you're doing. Do everything as unto the Lord. But then in chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, it also says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust in your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. So you know what? Work hard, dedicate yourself to what you're doing, but don't become a workaholic. Don't, don't trust in riches, because you know what? The riches, if you're working to be rich, you will be let down at some point, because the riches will not ultimately satisfy. Don't wear yourself out to get rich. So, so work hard, and then give generously. Give generously. Chapter 11, verses 24 and 25 says, One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. You know what? When we are generous with what we have, we bring great glory to God. We bring great benefit to other people around us. And it loosens idolatry's grip on our heart. It loosens that sense of greed because we have to, have to share with others. And one of the best ways to release an idol is to literally let it go to get it out of our lives. And one of the ways we do that financially or with material resources, share them. Give, even if it's uncomfortable, whether it's finances or other resources. So give generously. And finally, fear the Lord. Work hard, give generously, fear the Lord. Now you think about it, if you fear the stock market, that's an indication that the stock market is your God. But if you fear the Lord, then he is your God. Proverbs 15, verse 16 says, Better a little with fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a little with fear of the Lord. Better. You know what? Jesus 
is better than everything this world has to offer. And when we get that perspective, then we will understand, you know what, money, it's, it's helpful, it's nice, but we can hold it with an open hand saying, you know what, this isn't my idol. I don't absolutely need it to, to give me identity, security, and purpose in life. No, because Jesus is better. Fear of the Lord helps take care of all forms of greed and idolatry. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, as I said, Jesus talks a lot about money. Matthew 6 contains some great teaching. He says, you know what? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Part of that is by being generous, by fearing the Lord, by serving others in the name of the Lord. He says, when you store up treasures in heaven, they're stored in a place where moth and rust will not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then a little bit later in that passage, he says, for your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So treasure Christ above all else, and that will help us to hold money in the right perspective. Because he says later, you cannot serve both God and money. One's going to be on the pedestal, the other will not. And we get the choice, which one do we want to put on the pedestal? That's why we say fear the Lord recognize Jesus is better because we live in a culture that idolizes money and, and material success but we have the opportunity to live counterculturally and as people see that and they see the joy and the freedom and the peace that we're able to live with as we fear the Lord rather than fearing the stock market they'll wonder you know what how can I get that too and we can point them to them to the fact that Jesus is better let's pray our Father, I pray that you will be at work in our lives, helping us to live in such a way that we, that we work hard, and that we give generously, and that we fear you, and that we will show that money and material possessions are not our treasure, that we will be able to enjoy resources that you entrust to us, but that we will not hold them for ourselves, that we recognize that, that we are not the, ultimately the master of our money, but that you are, and we are stewards of it. Lord, may we hold it all with an open hand and I pray that you will be at work in our hearts releasing those deep idols that we will not have to look to anything else besides you for a sense of identity significance and purpose but that as we look to you that you will bring us a joy and a fulfillment and a peace that surpasses anything this world has to offer because Jesus is better we pray these things in his name Amen Please stay with us.